This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, and TED Talks. It is getting really difficult to ignore that Obamacare is working very well. And I'll walk you through the recent data on this. Earlier this week, Gallup put out the newest data we have on the uninsured rate. And they found, not surprisingly, that states that have embraced the Affordable Care Act have seen the largest drops in the number of residents going without health care. This is obvious, right, Lewis? If you pass a law mandating people be insured, the number of people that are uninsured will drop. This is not really a controversial or surprising element of it. No, the controversial uh, aspect of it is the mandate itself. But, uh, you know, that's another uh, separate issue. So the more interesting data to look at is whether uh, we are also seeing health care delivery happening in a better way. And are we seeing the dire predictions that were attached to the Affordable Care Act come true or not? So several recent studies show that uh, none of the bad predictions from Republicans, to put it uh, in, in a simple way, are coming true. A paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association at the end of July concluded that Obamacare is successfully connecting more Americans to health services like doctors and medication. Since the law took effect, more people say they have a primary care physician and fewer people say they're struggling to afford their care. This is different than just having care. So, yeah, you pass a law saying people have to have some kind of health insurance on paper. You're going to reduce the number of people that are uninsured. But having access to care, saying I don't have a problem affording care, saying I now have a primary care physician who is my primary physician for sort of the point guard for my health care, that is a change in terms of the relationship that people have to the health insurance world. And that is very significant. It's very significant as well because, uh, you know, it's important to have preventive care and to have people who are uh, no longer afraid to visit a doctor or hospital uh, because it ends up costing everyone a lot more money when they just wait around and get sicker and sicker. Another analysis that came out this week from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation found that the Affordable Care Act did not have any of those adverse effects on, for example, labor force participation. It did not substantially increase the number of Americans working part-time jobs, which debunks the right-wing talking point that the Affordable Care Act is a job killer. This is not a perfect law, Lewis. It does not go nearly far enough to provide insurance to everybody. It further locks in the for-profit, primarily employer-connected system that we have by giving tens of millions of new customers to for-profit insurers. And it does create some gaps in the, in the middle class, which put people in bad situations where they have too much money to really have a significant subsidy towards care, but at the same time, they don't make enough money that health insurance is relatively inexpensive for them. So there are problems here. But we have to recognize that, number one, the dire predictions from Republicans have, have completely fallen flat. And number two, it has successfully improved the relationship of many Americans to health insurance. This has not stopped, though, Republicans in the Senate from trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And in the recent Republican debate, you still have candidates saying, when I am president, 
I am going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We are still seeing that. And that is just fantasy world mentality. Startup Turing Pharmaceuticals bought rights to the drug Daraprim, a long-used treatment for toxoplasmosis, in August, and then raised the price. Long sold for around a dollar a pill, but more recently at $13 to $750 a pill. That was what the CEO, former hedge fund manager Martin Screlly, initially defended as a common-sense business decision. And, he argued, ultimately an altruistic one, since he claimed that some of the profits would be devoted to finding a cure for toxoplasmosis. After a social media beatdown, Screlly has backed off the price increase, but people truly concerned about the price and the pricing of drugs would do well not to dust off their hands and walk away. Here to give us some of the bigger picture is economist Dean Baker, co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, writer of the blog Beat the Press, and a regular contributor to FAIR.org. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on. Well, among the various epithets that one might attach to Martin Screlly, criminal would not appear to be one. He didn't break any laws, and were it not for social media, we probably wouldn't know his name. But the outrage is understandable and seems to tap into something real. But in some ways, this story seems kind of anomalous. I don't know. How does this fit, really, in the bigger question of why drugs cost what they do? Well, I think there's two things here. I mean, the point you were making before, this is an old drug. It's a generic drug. There's no patent on it. Ordinarily, we're looking at high-priced drugs because you have a drug company like Gilead Sciences owning a patent on Sovati, the hepatitis C drug. They did develop that or played a role in developing it. That's an issue, but they clearly played a role in developing it. They brought it to market. They're ostensibly recovering research costs. There's at least some truth to that. In this case, what they discovered, this hedge fund guy discovered, was that you have an old generic drug that it's not widely used, but it is very important for the people who need it. It's a life or death proposition, no easy substitute. They're the sole producer, so they have a de facto monopoly. Now, someone else could get into the market, but it wouldn't be worth them to take the time to get FDA approval because it's a very small market. So he found this little niche, and he's able to jump in there and charge outlandish prices because there is no one else there. That's actually happened with several other generic drugs over the last three, four, five years. And this is just a a failure of antitrust regulation because that's really what that's about. The more typical story has to do with how we finance research more generally. And I was mentioning the case of Savati and the hepatitis C drug and Gilead Science. They're charging 84000 a year for a treatment. The generic price of that would be less than 1000 Now, that stems to how we finance research. And I think that's very, very problematic, but it's at least a very different question 
than what this hedge fund guy did, which is really just, you know, basically price gouging, pure and simple. Yeah, I mean, what we're hearing is, well, this is why the market is the wrong mechanism for drug pricing, but really on another level, the problem more broadly with drug pricing is it doesn't really follow what people understand as a free market system in which, hey, if you can do the same thing for less, for cheaper, you know, you win. It's it's not really a, a market in the way people think of it. Well, that's right, on both accounts. So in this case, it's a generic drug where there's a sole legal manufacturer. So it's very far from the market. The reason you could do this is because it is a monopoly. Now, obviously, if he continues to charge you know, the, these prices, $700 a pill, it won't stay a monopoly. But in the meantime, a lot of people or their insurers, the government, whoever's picking up the tab, would be out an awful lot of money. And, of course, some people may not have that money, so they may not be able to get it. But, yeah, you know, over time, that would eventually be eroded. But the more common story, you know, the patent case I was talking about earlier, the government's giving you a monopoly. So people like the market, um, sorry, fellas, you know, that's not the market. The government's saying to Gilead Sciences, go ahead, sell your drug for 84000 If anyone comes in and competes with you, we'll put them in jail. So that that's hardly a free market. And, you know, again, I understand you have to pay the research. And I've had discussions with people. They insist you don't want to pay the research. I'm going, no. The government could pay for the research. This is an incredibly inefficient way to do it. We already spend $30 billion a year on research to the National Institutes of Health, and I have all these people who take great pleasure in going, National Institutes of Health doesn't develop drugs. They do basic research. I know they mostly do basic research. They actually do sometimes develop drugs, but they don't develop drugs because we don't tell them to develop drugs. So the point I always make is we could pay for this directly. We could even have it go through the private sector, and then we could have all these drugs available at generic prices. They would cost the same as a bottle of generic aspirin. We shouldn't be looking at paying $84,000 when someone has hepatitis C for their treatment. And the analogy I've made, and I think it's an appropriate one, is we don't think it makes sense to have the fire department come down to your house when it's on fire and your family's inside and then negotiate how much you should pay them. And that's, in effect, what we've done with drugs. And that's just not a good way to finance drug research. Well, bring us into the global picture. How does this relate to what's going on now in terms of the WTO and drug pricing? Well, the U.S. government has really been doing the drug company's work in trying to extend patent and related protections as broadly as possible. And particularly, we're concerned, or I should say, the the government has been concerned about the developing world, particularly India, where you have a very advanced, really state-of-the-art generic drug industry, where they're producing drugs at much, much lower prices because basically they, they don't have the same sorts of patent protections as we do. And the immediate issue before the WTO, the WTO did require, this is part of the TRIPS uh, legislation that was put in there by President Clinton in 1994, um, the WTO requires developing countries to adopt U.S.-style patent law. The original deadline was 2005. That was extended to 2013 and then 2016 specifically for prescription drugs. There's an effort now to extend it further. The U.S. has agreed to go along with 2023 and there's a big push by the developing countries, and it recently got the support of the European Union, to basically extend it indefinitely for the least developed countries as long as they are in that category least developed. We're talking about countries like Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, Madagascar, very, very poor countries. So basically saying that as long as they're very poor countries, 
they won't have to have U.S.-style patent protection. So there's an effort to do that. The WTO and the Obama administration has yet to take a stand on that position, and certainly a lot of health activists would like to see President Obama join the European Union in saying that, you know, we'll put off the data which they have to adopt U.S.-style patent protections. Well, what about not extending and extending the exemption, but just kind of overturning the idea that drugs should fit in this patent regime. I mean, if we think that people ought to be able to develop generic drugs, why don't we just say that? Well, you do have to deal with what the funding mechanism is, and that is, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what we have to talk about. And it's, you know, obviously the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want us to have that discussion. But we spend on the order of $400 billion a year. I'm just talking about the United States, not the whole world. We spend on the order of $400 billion a year, about 2.2% of our economy, on prescription drugs. And if these drugs were available at generic prices, we'd probably be talking about spending less than a tenth that amount. This is a huge amount of money. And again, I understand we have to finance the research. But the way we do it now is an incredibly inefficient way to do it. Drug companies have a massive incentive to to misrepresent their findings. They do it all the time. They say drugs are effective. They turn out not to be. They conceal evidence of their, their harmful side effects. People die from that, and that's because we've given them incentive. People believe in the market should understand that. We've given them enormous incentives to, to mislead the public, to, in effect, lie about the safety and effectiveness of their drugs. Also, because of the patent system, they keep their research secret as much as as much as they can. Pfizer doesn't want to give away its 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 research findings to Merck to its competitors. Why on earth would they do that? That makes sense for Pfizer. It doesn't make sense if you want to see drugs develop rapidly to treat new diseases. So it's an incredibly inefficient, archaic system, and we should be having a discussion about how you modernize the system of financing drug research. But as I said drug industry is very powerful and they really don't want to have that discussion. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. I told you yesterday about this vulture capitalist move by Turing, which is a pharmaceutical company, and its CEO, Martin Shkreli, to raise the price of a drug called Daraprim to $750 per tablet 
from $13.50 per tablet. This is a medicine that at one point sold for a dollar a pill. This is a medicine that is very important in treating a number of conditions, including some connected to AIDS. And a 5,500% price increase was justified by Martin Shkreli on CNBC and on other media outlets as necessary in order to fund research into a better version of this drug. Well, that price increase, Lewis, has been canceled. The uh, latest news is that they have agreed to lower the price of Daraprim to a point that it is more affordable and that will still allow the company to make a profit albeit a very small profit. We don't yet know, Lewis, what the final cost would be. It could still represent a 2,000% price increase, which would be a big drop from the 5,500% price increase. I guess it would technically be more affordable, although still wholly inaffordable for many people. But I guess we can still be happy that the public outrage and pressure has made the price decrease somewhat, even if we don't yet know exactly what the new price will be. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, even if it drops off $5, it's still better than before. But I think you can still expect this to be outrageously expensive. If you watch interviews with Screlly, it's clear that he's a scumbag. He kind of <laughs> reminds me of Scott Walker in some ways. Um, why would a hedge fund man, a former hedge fund manager go into pharmaceuticals? Uh, because it's, he thought it would be incredibly profitable. That's why. And it is incredibly profitable for so many companies. And earlier in the day, PH Arma, I don't know how it's pronounced. It's PHRMA. It's the pharmaceutical industry's main lobbying group. They took this as a great opportunity to try to paint themselves as the good guys. They said, whoa, Turing's move is not something that represents the values of all of our companies. It's such a fantastic opportunity for an industry who is uh, that that a lobbying group that is involved with the immoral status quo of profits for people's health. Great opportunity for them to try to attempt to look better. Uh, yeah, look a little bit better, but we know better, don't we? I really hope that this debacle will bring to light other pharmaceutical issues that really deserve attention. Because anytime we talk about a company raising the prices of a drug that is a really important drug, there are many companies releasing unnecessary drugs with huge price tags. They go to market by doing clinical trials that show their marginal superiority to placebos. They never talk about whether they're actually better than existing treatments. And people really need to uh, be aware that when you see those commercial, Lewis, uh, the, the, the commercials that say, oh, 50 percent more effective than a placebo, you need to think critically about that and think about it on two fronts. Number one, the placebo might be 2 percent effective and the new drug might be 3 percent effective. That accurately allows them to say this is 50 percent more effective than the placebo Yet it's still not very effective. That's number one in terms of how these these uh, drugs are marketed, unnecessary drugs. And number two, those commercials often don't compare the effectiveness of the new drug to the drugs already available. And this is a marketing game. So many of these drugs, Lewis, are sold based on spending more marketing dollars. And then another trick that is often used, we've talked about the patent issue that we have within the pharmaceutical world that allows profits to be driven up, prices to be driven up, is pharmaceutical companies making minor improvements to existing drugs to extend the patent. So a good example is Ambien, a sleep medication, 
made into ambient. I believe it's, I don't remember if it's controlled release or extended release. And it's a capsule, uh, a, ca- a, a gel cap that will um, extend, that will d- d- release some of the medication later on in the night to help you stay asleep. Unclear whether there's any benefit whatsoever to that. If there is, it's marginal at best, but it allows the patent to be extended. Oh, I've taken the regular Ambien, and believe me, it keeps you asleep all night, Dave. <laughs> um, yes, the patent system is a huge problem. Uh, there are just it, our health system is riddled with problems, and it's uh, yeah, it's going to be really, really hard to fix. So I have no problem at all with being critical of Martin Shkreli and what he has done with this particular drug. Absolutely worth it, but this should be taken as an opportunity to inform people about some of the other issues that go on with Big Pharma, issues that many people may have no awareness of whatsoever. talking about this you know this total dirtbag this guy mark martin uh shrekley the uh the farmer yeah. ceo who's you know i guess now he's backtracking a little bit he's saying he's not going to raise the price of this vital aids drug uh by five thousand percent which was the initial uh number that he tagged yeah. on it but the thing is that, that and i i really want to get you thought on this before we wrap up it, every time Something like this happens, and it's quite easy, and we've done it ourselves on this show because this guy certainly, you know, it's all, it's, it's what he's done, it's his manner. I mean, he does come off like a total sociopath and a sort of like uniquely unethical and repulsive person. But when we fixate on a symptom, are we losing sight of, while this is a radical and extreme example, how different is this from kind of rampant price gouging across pharma itself? And frankly, in some ways, you know, if you're watching Fox Business or something, isn't this guy just like doing capitalism? So it's so weird that we, yeah, you know, you know what I'm are, saying? We are focusing too much on him as an individual, and uh, the pharmaceutical industry knows it. I read a piece on the uh, on the website of the pharmaceutical industry by a commentator who was of slapping his forehead and saying, oh, God, this is only going to bring more attention to, to our misdeeds. Every time something like this happens, it gets the press and politicians agitated. Even Hillary tweeted about it, saying that yep. she's going to do something to address it. But um, I did a segment on this yesterday morning on HuffPost Live, and I had um, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel on it, Zeke Emanuel, who was one of the architects of Obamacare and who was one of Obama's White House <coughs> advisors, who now heads up um, health policy at UPenn. And he was saying that these are the things that we need the, the catalysts to be to get some action on controlling the price of drugs. So the United States is the only country in the world, in the rich world, the only developed country that has no mechanism for regulating the price of drugs. I mean, in countries like Australia and Canada, where you have Medicare for all, there's a pharmaceutical benefits body, which is just a panel of experts that say, that analyze the benefits and the downsides of, of drugs, 
and uh, they, they they make recommendations and they say that this is what Medicare is going to pay and this is what it's not going to pay and we don't think that the drug is worth more than that and with a finite amount of money to spend, we're not going to spend it. And you know what? Drug companies cop it. They don't, they don't go bankrupt. They don't go broke. They still sell the drugs for reasonable prices. They're still able to I mean, innovate. They're still able to innovate. They might just have a smaller yep. uh, bonuses and a smaller ad budget, which is where all yeah, this money goes to. The whole innovation argument is almost always BS. So, right. for example, here's, here's one example. Gilead Sciences. They developed two hep C drugs, Savaldi and Harvoni, less than two years ago. They have already recouped all of the R&D expenses for the development of those two drugs. Do you think they're bringing the prices down to cheap levels? Of course not. They're going to keep on charging as high a price as they possibly can for these drugs, and they will in perpetuity, and they'll, then they'll justify it by saying, well, I mean, the American consumer has to pay these high prices so that we can afford the innovation and the research and development on other drugs. Well, that's exactly the same bullshit that, that uh, this guy was saying when he raised the price of that drug by 5,000%. He said exactly. that we want to find a better drug. Every doctor I've spoken to says there's no need to find a better drug because the drug that he just jacked the price up on exactly. already does a perfectly good job. Exactly. It's like, like, well, we'll privatize your water supply and jack it up to find something better at hydrating you. I mean, it's, there has it's to be, utterly ludicrous. There has ludicrous. to be action on this. There has to be yes. some kind of... I mean, the, you know, the biggest... The worst thing that ever happened in the healthcare debate was all the rhetoric about death panels. We need death panels. We need panels that are able to say this is worth spending money on and that is not worth spending money on. If, if, if you could extend grandma's life by, by one day on, in, in a coma in a hospital bed where she's not even aware of it at a cost of a trillion dollars, would that be worth it? Would that seriously be worth it, a trillion dollars for one more day in a coma? Clearly not. So we have to start making decisions about what we want to spend money on and what we don't want to spend money on. And part of that has to do with what we're willing to, what kind of price we're willing to pay for which particular types of drugs. Yeah, but Otherwise, and, healthcare yeah. is just going to absorb the entire U.S. economy. Well, that's exactly right. But also not only that, I mean, when we, if we actually did a process like that, the primary sort of where the fat would be cut would not be on life extension and health. Because first of all, we also already know another major part of this conversation is the complete lack of emphasis placed on prevention and healthy lifestyles and things that actually sure. could fundamentally lead to, uh, you know, increasing lifespan, lowering medical costs. But the other sort of, but, but when we actually did an actual process where we attacked these treatments, and it was done properly and just about actual efficiencies, it would come down on pharma, it would come down on the insurance industry. I mean, when we're talking about things like HMOs and insurance, these are completely unnecessary and parasitic industries to begin with. But I think the takeaway from this segment here, though, is that in some ways Martin Treckley is almost like the Donald Trump of the pharma industry, and that by being so obscene, he's revealing the true nature of this business and giving us a roadmap for all the radical reforms we need. So I guess... Thanks, Martin. I mean, I still think you yeah. should probably be in jail, but thank you. Yeah, and I would, I would just add also, it's a common trope on the left to blame HMOs and insurance companies. Insurance companies' margins are actually surprisingly slim. The real, the real cost of American healthcare comes from pharmaceutical device, yes, from pharmaceutical true. companies, drug companies, medical device manufacturers, hospitals, and actually doctors, that's which right. is. You know, they're harder to beat up on, but that's actually the people who are... Well, I think that's true in terms of the prices, but I think where the beef with HMOs and insurance companies are, first of all, that's who you're primarily dealing with who's denying you care, as an example. Uh, And then secondly, we know that, you know, you mentioned Medicare for All Systems before. There isn't going to be a system in the world that doesn't exist, obviously, without doctors, medical devices, or drug companies. 
the necessity of having these mediating agents is highly suspect. So I think it's not the profit margins. It's the immediate role they play in screwing people over. And then, well, why do we even need you to begin with that triggers people so much? My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. So where do we go with Medicare? Medicare is, you know, in my book, Rebooting the American Dream, there's a whole chapter dedicated to Let's make Medicare a nationwide single-payer program. Now, there's two ways that we could go about doing this that are fairly straightforward and easy. The first would be to include Medicare as one of the options that you can choose when you buy your health insurance via Obamacare, basically through the Affordable Care Act. That's called the public option. And if, and if it wasn't for Joe Lieberman... If it wasn't for Joe Lieberman, we would have the public option as part of Obamacare, and, and it would be driving down the price of health insurance. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been two proposed very large mergers. One of them was just approved by the federal government between health insurance companies. So the middle size health insurance companies are merging to become giants. We're going to end up, just like we have only four major airlines in the United States, we're going to end up with four major insurance companies. And that's not competition. That's That's... It's not monopoly because it's not mono. It's not one company, but they behave as if they're one company. They fix prices. They call it setting prices. And these companies, these health insurance companies, are mind-bogglingly profitable. Their stock values have been going up steadily since the introduction of Obamacare. So if they had some competition from Medicare you would see a you would see their profit dropping somewhat and b you would you 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 would see their prices going down and there yeah there's a relationship between those two so that's one way to do it is make it a public you know write a public option into obamacare now that's not going to happen when republicans control the house and senate but if we can get democratic control of the house and senate in the election of 2016 that could happen and it would be a great that would be a great step number 1 Step number two is even more radical than that. It's specifically what I recommended in my book, uh, Rebooting the American Dream, and that you know Bernie sent this book out to all 99 other senators along with a cover letter saying you need to read this. He read part of it on you know when he did his eight-hour filibuster on the floor. Uh, you know, read from one of my chapters in my uh, one of the chapters in in my book, Rebooting the American Dream, and that specific proposal was that every year. Medicare drop its eligibility rate by one decade. Because it's going to take a year or so for the Medicare 
um, bureaucracy, and I say that in the positive sense of the word, to expand enough to handle the new the new claims, right? So next year, the eligibility age for Medicare goes from 65 down to 55. The year after that, the eligibility age goes from 55 to 45. The year after that, the eligibility age goes from 45 to 35. And so on until finally the eligibility age is zero. It's birth. And, and you can get into Medicare, number one. And number two, let's strengthen Medicare by taking all the private for-profit stuff that has been inserted into it by Republicans since it was first put into law by Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s as part of the Great Society programs. Let's take that stuff out. It's crazy that United Healthcare is is the largest provider of Medicare Part whatever it is, you know the 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 the, sup, the so-called supplemental plans. Republicans they drill holes in Medicare and then they say, oh my God, there's a hole in Medicare. Well, hey, it's an opportunity for Stephen J. Hemsley to make another billion dollars. And it's just it's in my opinion it's wrong. It should not be. We should have a national single payer healthcare system just like every other developed country in the world has or has some variation on that everybody in the country is covered. It is a right, not a privilege. It's in our Declaration of Independence. That we should, that, you know, the, the, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, how can you have the right to life and not heal people when they're sick? It makes no sense. So, in my humble opinion, if we got the if we get the corporations out of Medicare, number one, do away with this whole you know Medicare Part B thing, where where you have to go to a private for profit insurance company and give them a couple hundred bucks every month, blow that out, do the, do away with that. We don't need it. It's just producing billions, literally billions of dollars in profits for for the big health insurance companies. Take it out, and then secondly, Medicare Part D. Which is, which says explicitly, and this is why Billy Towson got a job. He was the he the floor manager for this legislation in the House of Representatives, the former congressman from Louisiana. We had him on this program, in fact. And he, you know, he kind of did a mea culpa, I suppose you could call it. But you know, he he pushed this thing through, and then pharma, the drug lobby, offered him a two million dollar a year job as the head of pharma. So it goes from a $160,000 a year, $130,000, I think it was back then, $130,000 a year annual salary as a congressman to a $2 million a year's annual salary as the head of the lobbying group, Pharma. And he wanted to leave Congress so fast to get that money that, I don't remember who it was, it was a Denny Hastert or whoever was the, the Speaker of the House at the time, Tom DeLay, whatever the Republican was who was running the House of Representatives at that time, this is back in 2006, as I recall, actually... So I actually got uh, Billy Towson's special permission to leave the House of Representatives before his term was over so he could start making his money as payback for pushing through this piece of legislation that says that, you know, when Medicare pays for your drugs, they have to pay the full price, which is nuts. Medicare's got to be buying millions, particularly, you know, since Medicare is for seniors, for things like, you know, uh, blood pressure medication, uh, you know, the, the Lipitor things, what do you call them, the, these uh, 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 things that reduce cholesterol, uh, the statin drugs and things like that. They've got to be buying millions of these things. But they're paying as if they were buying individual prescriptions. Full retail. 
It's a $600 billion gift to the big pharmaceutical industry. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, supporting the Prescription Drug Affordability Act of 2015. No matter your personal frustration level with Big Pharma, everyone who's ever filled out a prescription knows the medication part of our health, quote-unquote, care system is seriously fucked up. To address several of the factors that spike drug prices in the U.S., Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Elijah Cummings introduced legislation last month aptly and simply named the Prescription Drug Affordability Act of 2015. The bullet points include allow U.S. residents to import lower-cost medications from Canada, encourage Medicare to negotiate medication prices with drug makers, something private insurance companies do regularly but Medicare is banned from doing, require drug manufacturers to disclose prices from treatments they will sell in other countries, involve the Health and Human Services Secretary in drug price negotiations with Medicare, which the Center for Economic and Policy Research is already estimating could save the federal government between 230 and $541 billion over the next decade, require drug makers to submit annual reports detailing how drug prices are set, including research and development costs and such, and eradicating any existing market exclusivity periods for medications that should never have been granted. This legislation is better than spending neutral. It would save the federal government money and provide better access to life-saving and life-improving health care. It should be a both-sides-of-the-aisle winner. Of course, that sort of thing is mostly a pipe dream these days without significant public pressure, and that means your voice is needed. You can click support, contact your legislators directly, and track the House and Senate bills through govtrack.us. The Progressive Direct Action Group Demand Progress also has a petition in support of the legislation, which you can find through the link in the segment notes and posted on the Demand Progress social media feeds. It's one of those links that's impossible to actually say, so we just link to it. It's long past time people weren't choosing between food and medication or housing and medication or doing without treatment with the power to vastly improve every aspect of their lives. There will be plenty left for the drug manufacturers after these reforms. We're simply asking for them to conduct their business ethically. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If affordable accessible treatment for all matters to you be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the prescription drug affordability act of 2015 via social media so that others in your network can get involved too can you stand up and be counted there's a body in a crowd put your name on a petition with your signature so proud can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change For over a decade as a doctor, I've cared for homeless veterans, for working class families 
I've cared for people who live and work in conditions that can be hard, if not harsh. And that work has led me to believe that we need a fundamentally different way of looking at healthcare. We simply need a healthcare system that moves beyond just looking at the symptoms that bring people into clinics, but instead actually is able to look and improve health where it begins. And where health begins is not in the four walls of a doctor's office, but where we live and where we work, where we eat, sleep, learn, and play, where we spend the majority of our lives. So what does this different approach to healthcare look like? An approach that can improve health where it begins. To illustrate this, I'll tell you about Veronica. Veronica was the 17th patient out of my 26th patient day at that clinic in South Central Los Angeles. She came into our clinic with a chronic headache. This headache had been going on for a number of years, and this particular episode was very, very troubling. In fact, three weeks before she came to visit us for the first time, she went to an emergency room in Los Angeles. The emergency room doctors said, you know, we run some tests, Veronica, the results are normal, so here's some pain medication, and follow up with a primary care doctor. But if the pain persists or if it worsens, then come on back. Veronica followed those standard instructions, and she went back. She went back not just once, but twice more. In the three weeks before Veronica met us, she went to the emergency room three times. She went back and forth, in and out of hospitals and clinics, just like she had done in years past, trying to seek relief, but still coming up short. Veronica came to our clinic, and despite all these encounters with healthcare professionals, Veronica was still sick. When she came to our clinic, though, we tried a different approach. Our approach started with our medical assistant, someone who had a GED-level training, but knew the community. Our medical assistant asked some routine questions. She asked, what's your chief complaint? Headache. Let's get your vital signs, measure your blood pressure and your heart rate. But let's also ask about something equally as vital to Veronica and a lot of patients like her in South Los Angeles. Veronica, can you tell me about where you live, specifically about your housing conditions? Do you have mold? Do you have water leaks? Do you have roaches in your home? Turns out Veronica said yes to three of those things, roaches, water leaks, mold. I received that chart in hand, reviewed it, and I turned the handle on the door and I entered the room. You should understand that Veronica, like a lot of patients that I have the privilege of caring for, is a dignified person, a formidable presence, a personality that's larger than life. But here she was, doubled over in pain, sitting on my exam table. Her head, clearly throbbing, was resting in her hands. She lifted her head up, and I saw her face. I said, hello. And then I immediately noticed something across the bridge of her nose, a crease in her skin. In medicine, we call that crease the allergic salute. It's usually seen among children who have chronic allergies. It comes from chronically rubbing one's nose up and down, trying to get rid of those allergy symptoms. And yet here was Veronica, a grown woman, with the same telltale sign of allergies. A few minutes later, in asking Veronica some questions, in examining her and listening to her, I said, Veronica, I think I know what you have. I think you have chronic allergies. I think you have migraine headaches and some sinus congestion. And I think all of those are related to where you live. She looked a little bit relieved because for the first time she had a diagnosis. But I said, Veronica, now let's talk about your treatment. We're going to order some medications for your symptoms, but I also want to refer you to a specialist, if that's okay. Now, specialists are a little hard to find in South Central Los Angeles. So she gave me this look like, really? And I said, Veronica, actually the specialist I'm talking about is someone I call a community health worker. 
someone who, if it's okay with you, can come to your home and try to understand what's going on with those water leaks and that mold, try to help you manage those conditions in your housing that I think are causing your symptoms. And if required, that specialist might refer you to another specialist that we call a public interest lawyer, because it might be that your landlord isn't making the fixes he's required to make. Veronica came back in a few months later. She agreed to all those treatment plans. She told us that her symptoms had improved by 90%. She was spending more time at work and with her family, and less time shuttling back and forth between the emergency rooms of Los Angeles. Veronica had improved remarkably. Her sons, one of whom had asthma, was no longer as sick as they used to be. She had gotten better, and not coincidentally, Veronica's home was better too. What was it about this different approach that we tried that led to better care, fewer visits to the ER, better health? Well, quite simply, it started with that question. Veronica, where do you live? But more importantly, it was that we put in place a system that allowed us to routinely ask questions like Veronica and hundreds more like her about the conditions that mattered in her community, about where health and unfortunately sometimes illness does begin in places like South LA. In that community, substandard housing, food insecurity are the major conditions that we as a clinic had to be aware of. But in other communities, it could be transportation barriers, obesity, access to parks, gun violence. The important thing is we put in place a system that worked. It's an approach that I call an upstream approach. It's a term many of you are familiar with. It comes from a parable that's very common in the public health community. This is a parable of three friends. Imagine that you're one of these three friends who come to a river. It's a beautiful scene, but it's shattered by the cries of a child, and actually several children in need of rescue in the water. So you do, hopefully, what everybody would do. You jump right in along with your friends. The first friend says, I'm going to rescue those who are about to drown, those at most risk of falling over the waterfall. The second friend says, you know what, I'm going to build a raft. I'm going to make sure that fewer people need to end up at the waterfall's edge. Let's usher more people to safety by building this raft, coordinating those branches together. Over time, they're successful, but not really as much as they want to be. More people slip through. And they finally look up and they see that their third friend is nowhere to be seen. They finally spot her. She's in the water. She's swimming away from them, upstream, rescuing children as she goes. And they shout to her, where are you going? There are children here to save. And she says back, I'm going to find out who or what is throwing these children in the water. In healthcare, we have that first friend. We have the specialist. We have the trauma surgeon, the ICU nurse, the ER doctors. We have those people that are vital rescuers, people you want to be there when you're in dire straits. We also know that we have the second friend. We have that raft builder. That's the primary care clinician People on the care team who are there to manage your chronic conditions, your diabetes, your hypertension, there to give you your annual checkups, there to make sure your vaccines are up to date, but also there to make sure that you have a raft to sit on and usher yourself to safety. But while that's also vital and very necessary, what we're missing is that third friend. We don't have enough of that upstreamist. The upstreamists are the healthcare professionals who know that health does begin where we live and work and play. But beyond that awareness is able to mobilize the resources to create the system in their clinics and in their hospitals that really does start to approach that, to connect people to the resources they need outside the four walls of the clinic. Now, you might ask in a very obvious question that a lot of colleagues in medicine ask, doctors and nurses thinking about transportation and housing? Shouldn't we just provide pills and procedures and just make sure we focus at the task at hand? Certainly, rescuing people at the water's edge it's important enough work. Who has the time? I would argue, though, that if we were to use science as our guide, that we would find an upstream approach is absolutely necessary. 
scientists now know that the living and working conditions that we all are part of have more than twice the impact on our health than does our genetic code. And living and working conditions, the structures of our environments, the ways in which our social fabric is woven together, and the impact those have on our behaviors, all together, those have more than five times the impact on our health than does all the pills and procedures administered by doctors and hospitals combined. Altogether, living and working conditions account for 60% of preventable death. Let me give you an example of what this feels like. Let's say there was a company, a tech startup, that came to you and said, we have a great product. It's going to lower your risk of death from heart disease. Now, you might be likely to invest if that product was a drug or a device. But what if that product was a park? A study in the UK, a landmark study that reviewed the records of over 40 million residents in the UK, looked at several variables, controlled for a lot of different factors, and found that when trying to control, when trying to adjust the risk of heart disease, one's exposure to green space was a powerful influence. The closer you were to green space, to parks and trees, the lower your chance of heart disease. And that stayed true for rich and for poor. That study illustrates what my friends in public health often say these days, that one's zip code matters more than your genetic code. We're also learning that zip code is actually shaping our genetic code. The science of epigenetics looks at those molecular mechanisms, those intricate ways in which our DNA is literally shaped, genes turned on and off based on the exposures to the environment, to where we live and to where we work. So it's clear that these factors, these upstream issues, do matter. They matter to our health, and therefore our healthcare professionals should do something about it. And yet Veronica asked me perhaps the most compelling question I've been asked in a long time. In that follow-up visit, she said, why did none of my doctors ask about my home before. In those visits to the emergency room, I had two CAT scans. I had a needle placed in the lower part of my back to collect spinal fluid. I had nearly a dozen blood tests. I went back and forth. I saw all sorts of people in healthcare, and no one asked about my home. The honest answer is that in healthcare, we often treat symptoms without addressing the conditions that make you sick in the first place. And there are many reasons for that, but the big three are, first, we don't pay for that. In healthcare, we often pay for volume and not value. We pay doctors and hospitals usually for the number of services they provide, but not necessarily on how healthy they make you. That leads to a second phenomenon that I call the don't ask, don't tell approach to upstream issues in healthcare. We don't ask about where you live and where you work because if there's a problem there, we don't know what to tell you. It's not that doctors don't know these are important issues. In a recent survey done in the U.S. among physicians, over a thousand physicians 80% of them actually said that they know that their patients' upstream problems are as important as their health issues, as their medical problems. And yet, despite that widespread awareness of the importance of upstream issues, only one in five doctors said they had any sense of confidence to address those issues, to improve health where it begins. There's this gap between knowing that patients' lives, the context of where they live and work, matters, and the ability to do something about it in the systems in which we work. This is a, a huge problem right now. Because it leads then to this next question, which is, whose responsibility is it? And that brings me to that third point, that third answer to Veronica's compelling question. Part of the reason that we have this conundrum is because there are not nearly enough upstreamists in the healthcare system. There are not nearly enough of that third friend, that person who's going to find out who or what is throwing those kids in the water. Now, there are many upstreamists, and I've had the privilege of meeting many of them, including in Los Angeles and in other parts of the country and around the world. 
And it's important to note that upstreamists sometimes are doctors, but they need not be. They can be nurses, other clinicians, care managers, social workers. It's not so important what specific degree upstreamists have at the end of their name. What's more important is that they all seem to share the same ability to implement a process that transforms their systems, transforms the way they practice medicine. That process is a quite simple process. It's one, two, and three. First, they sit down and they say, let's identify the clinical problem among a certain set of patients. Let's say, for instance, let's try to help children who are bouncing in and out of the hospital with asthma. After identifying the problem, they then move on to that second step, and they say, let's identify the root cause. Now, a root cause analysis uh, in healthcare usually says, well, let's look at your genes. Let's look at you know, how you're behaving. Maybe you're not eating healthy enough, and you eat healthier. It's a pretty simplistic approach to root cause analyses. It turns out it doesn't really work when we just limit ourselves to that worldview. The root cause analysis that an upstreamist brings to the table is to say, let's look at the living and the working conditions in your life. Perhaps for children with asthma, it's what's happening in their home, or perhaps that they live close to a freeway with major air pollution that triggers to their asthma. And perhaps that's what we should mobilize our resources to address. Because that third element, that third part of the process, is that next critical part of what upstreamists do. They mobilize the resources to create a solution, both within the clinical system, and then by bringing in people from public health, from other sectors, lawyers, whoever is willing to play ball, let's bring in to create a solution that makes sense to take those patients who actually have clinical problems and address the root causes together by linking them to the resources you need. It's clear to me that there are so many stories of upstreamists who are doing remarkable things. The problem is that there's just not nearly enough of them out there. By some estimates, we need one upstreamist for every 20 to 30 clinicians in the healthcare system. In the U.S., for instance, that would mean that we need 25,000 upstreamists by the year 2020. But we only have a few thousand upstreamists out there right now by all accounts. And that's why a few years ago, my colleagues and I said, you know what, we need to train and make more upstreamists. So we decided to start an organization called Health Begins. And Health Begins simply does that. We train upstreamists. And there are a lot of measures that we use for our success, but the main thing that we're interested in is making sure that we're changing the sense of confidence, that don't ask, don't tell metric among clinicians. We're trying to make sure that clinicians, and therefore their systems that they work in, have the ability, the confidence, to address the problems in the living and working conditions in our lives. We're seeing nearly a tripling of that confidence in our work. It's remarkable. But I'll tell you the most compelling part of what it means to be working with upstreamists to gather them together. What is most compelling is that every day, every week, I hear stories just like Veronica's. There are stories out there of Veronica and many more like her, people who are coming to the healthcare system and getting a glimpse of what it feels like to be part of something that works. A healthcare system that stops bouncing you back and forth but actually improves your health, listens to who you are, addresses the context of your life, whether you're rich or poor or middle class. These stories are compelling because not only do they tell us that we're this close to getting the healthcare system that we want, but that there's something that we can all do to get there. Doctors and nurses can get better at asking about the context of patients' lives, not simply because it's better bedside manner, but frankly because it's a better standard of care. Healthcare systems and payers can start to bring in public health agencies and departments and say, let's look at our data together. Let's see if we can discover some patterns in our data about our patients' lives and see if we can identify an upstream cause. And then, as importantly, can we align the resources to be able to address them?
medical schools, nursing schools, all sorts of health professional education programs can help by training the next generation of upstreamists. We can also make sure that these schools certify a backbone of the upstream approach, and that's the community health worker. We need many more of them in the healthcare system if we're truly going to have it be effective to move from a sick care system to a healthcare system. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, what do we do? What do we do as patients? We can start by simply going to our doctors and our nurses, to our clinics, and asking, is there something in where I live and where I work that I should be aware of? Are there barriers to health that I'm just not aware of? And more importantly, if there are barriers that I'm surfacing, if I'm coming to you and saying, I think I have a problem with my apartment or my workplace, or I don't have access to transportation, or there's a park that's way too far, so sorry, doctor, I can't take your advice to go and jog. If those problems exist, then, doctor, are you willing to listen? And what can we do together to improve my health where it begins? If we're all able to do this work, doctors and healthcare systems, payers, and all of us together, we'll realize something about health. Health is not just a personal responsibility or a phenomenon. Health is a common good. It comes from our personal investment in knowing that our lives matter, the context of where we live and where we work, eat and sleep matter, and that what we do for ourselves, we also should do for those whose living and working conditions, again, can be hard, if not harsh. We can all invest in making sure that we improve the allocation of resources upstream, but at the same time, work together and show that we can move healthcare upstream. We can improve health where it begins. Hey, Jay, it's Ryan Phoenix. The call to action that I have for Best of the Left listeners and those with shared values uh, like the ones we share, I want to, again, just kind of emphasize the importance that people can have by tapping into their local resources and their local experts with people who work for cities. As somebody who works for a city, I kind of consider myself somebody smart and uh, poised to do some good things, but being a public servant isn't something that lends itself too easily to being an advocate for certain change. While I am poised to make that change, I need support behind me to make that change happen. And that that support behind me has to come from either the residents of the city, the members of committees to be active, city council members to be active, the city mayor to be active, and all that applies pressure on the system to react to the demands of these stakeholders. So it is critical for people with values to make sustainable changes, to be active and be an advocate for changes at the local scale. And the local scale gets so little attention in our media coverage because it only affects a few thousand people. And, and so for reporters and for the media to pay its bills, it needs to reach a larger audience uh, on the national scale. So local events and local activism and local things that can be done 
at your city level doesn't get that much attention. It's all about, you know, transportation bills at the, at the federal level. And sure, all that kind of stuff trickles down and has an effect at your city level. But there's so many smart people who can put together policies that don't require a whole lot of federal funding or a whole lot of federal action can be highly effective at engaging with these intelligent experts in their fields at your city level, go out and talk about the importance of park space and trails, and that can have a huge impact on people's public health. Go out and advocate for walkability and public safety on streets and slowing down traffic and and, and creating uh, better pedestrian-friendly crosswalks and advocate for transportation to be more public-oriented, to greater uh, response times and, and more frequency, and you'll induce demand for a more sustainable lifestyle. This is all possible, and I just want to uh, call on Best of Left listeners to go to your city's website, do a little research, what kind of committees are already in place, try to attend a committee meeting, try to attend a commission meeting, try to attend a council meeting, try to inject your voice into the public hearing process, try to advocate for positive, sustainable changes. Your cities are spending money to always update and uh, create new opportunities and and change the built environment and uh, change the way that the priorities for management of the of the city assets. So go out, let your values be understood, and advocate for sustainable change. There's too few voices in most cities uh, that are pushing for sustainable change. All right, Jamie, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Hi, Jay. My name is Eric from South Carolina. On this topic of giving people advice, um, like you, I am amazed, fascinated by the different facets of what's, what, what goes into communicating and sharing advice with each other, with friends, with co-workers, with, other, with acquaintances, family, and so on. And what I've learned, where I've learned the most about giving people advice is through um, 12-step programs such as um, Al-Anon, Codependence Anonymous, and so on. And what I've learned from, from these programs is that, first of all, someone, a, a person uh, receiving advice, of course, has to be ready, willing, and uh, want to receive that advice. That's the most important thing. And of course, with 12-step programs, that's why people are are there, ultimately, is to grow and change. And so by being in a forum that you're ready to accept advice, you find that that's where people are most willing to hear what, what you have to say and vice versa. Um, secondly, this idea of when you share advice in a 12-step meeting, you do it through um, speaking of your own experiences, your own, the things that uh, you've learned, and 
Um, oftentimes, it is a tremendous help when talking to someone. Um, first of all, you're in a you're in a group, you're in a forum, so you're not spe- necessarily specifically talking to any one person, but you can still share a story or experience that you've had in your life that has made a big difference for you that relates to what other people are dealing with. And by not being targeted, by not being direct, you're not wearing uh, a certain person's ego, um, and you're not telling them what to do. You're explaining how that situation in your life is similar and how it worked for you. And in that essence, you don't need to know that person's specific experience. And that person can hear what you have to say, take what's important to them, and leave the rest aside. And I have learned so much from other people in this in this sort of uh, setting and I hope, I, I believe other people have learned a lot from me as well um, and I found that it's, it's much more effective than just approaching people and saying you should do this or you should do that that is often very much taken the wrong way and um, can actually be detrimental to relationships instead of actually trying to help and make a difference. So that's my contribution towards uh, giving uh, advice. Um, thank you for all you do, Jay, and uh, keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is Brad calling from Dallas, and I just got done listening to your latest episode. And there's one thing that kind of bugs me about this situation with Ahmed Mohammed. Um, I actually live in the same town that he's in. And one thing I wanted to point out that I feel didn't get justice was this. If this kid was, let's say, a white kid, but he was, you know, a kind of a Billy Claybold, you know, looking kid walking around in a black trench coat, would he have gotten the same treatment? I'm kind of thinking, yeah, he would have gotten the same deal. So I think it's more of a overreaction on the part of the institution. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's the way it is. And the other thing I wanted to point out was this. Um, you know, when people are out there committing these acts of atrocities in the name of their religion, who do you not see doing this? I'll tell you who you don't see. You don't see rabbis, priests, or clerics doing it. They're more than happy to suggest other people do it, but they're not out there doing it themselves. So what does that tell you about their belief and their conviction in what they believe? Anyway, really enjoy the show. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com. That's the way to get the best quality recording to me. Or you can leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So today, just a couple of follow-ups on messages we 
just heard, Ryan from uh, Phoenix wanted me to let you know that if you're interested in community planning and everything that he was talking about, you can find out more at planning.org. And it just so happens that October is National Community Planning Month. So you can get all the details on that at the same website, planning.org slash NCPM. And then uh, at the end, we heard from Brad from Dallas uh, talking about Ahmed and his clock. And I don't think that Brad quite expanded enough on his line of thinking for me to uh, assume I know what he was driving at. But he mentioned uh, Billy Klebold, and I think what he meant was Dylan Klebold, one of the Columbine shooters. And he said, you know, basically, Ahmed was sort of, you know, wrongly accused of having a bomb. But if a white kid who looked like Dylan Klebold and was wearing a black trench coat did the same thing, he'd be treated the same way. And I think he's right about that. But there was something in the tone of Brad's voice that that sounded to me, and like, if I'm wrong, he'll call in and correct me. But it sounded like he was trying to explain that race was not a primary factor in Ahmed's case. Because a white kid, if he looked like an angry, brooding loner with a black trench coat, which is now like the American uniform for a school shooter, if a white kid dressed like that, well, then he'd be treated the same way. And uh, although that may be true, if, if you're trying to argue that race isn't the primary factor, but in order to try to create a level playing ground you have to compare a nerdy brown kid in a NASA t-shirt to a angry, brooding, loner white kid in a black trench coat, then you may be making a different point than you think you're making. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, please get those messages in either by email, as I said, or the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained